Chairman Kim and I just signed a joint statement in which he reaffirmed his unwavering commitment to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. The powerful quake hit right under the northern part of Osaka City at 7.58 a.m., the middle of the morning rush. And Japan become the first Asian nation to beat aside from South America. Hello, welcome to Japan in Focus. I'm Eleni Salters. It's been a summer of disasters for Japan this year. This week, a deadly typhoon hit the country's west and a powerful earthquake struck Hokkaido. There were also floods and landslides in July and a heat wave led to 50,000 hospitalizations between April and July. More than 300 people have died from these disasters and millions of households have been without power. Waseda University researcher Robert Fahi says while the Abe government has been quick to respond, it needs to start talking more about climate change and the frequency of these severe events. This year has been unusual because it's just been one thing after the other. I mean, obviously, this is a country that gets earthquakes and that's, you know, earthquakes, they happen. Sometimes you get a couple of them in the same year and sometimes they're quite severe. That's something that the country is very used to. But the combination of this flooding, these incredibly powerful typhoons, the one that we had earlier this week was the most powerful in 25 years. Um, and then on top of that, the earthquakes. It's the combination of these that has really been um, very surprising and very unusual. And not to forget uh, July's uh, floods and landslides. So how has the Abe yeah. government been coping with all of this? The immediate response from the government has, broadly speaking, been good. And I think people are generally happy with how the government has responded, with how quickly they've moved resources into the affected areas and how quickly they've moved to um, restore services. Um, I don't think there's any particular complaint about the disaster response in Japan. And of course, the country is is used to these disasters on some level and is, is quite well equipped for them. There is a question mark over what the government does next, because there's a concern that perhaps this is not just a freak outlier of a year, but that this is representative of something that's happening because of climate change, because of changes um, that are going to impact Japan over the next few years. And if this starts to become the standard pattern every summer, the extent to which the country is ready for that is under serious question. But are we actually hearing any Japanese lawmakers raise these points? They're being raised, but in a very patchwork kind of a way. So, for example, um, in terms of the overall heat wave, um, there has been discussion of the need to get air conditioning units into every public building that doesn't have them yet. We're seeing situations where uh, children were passing out from the heat because there are a lot of primary schools that don't have air conditioning, for example. And so now there is an effort to get air conditioning units installed in every primary school around the country. And that's great, but it's dealing with a single issue. There's no real coordinated attempt to sit down and go, what is the impact of these changing weather patterns going to be on Japan? And what kind of national response is needed to that? But surely such a huge event, for an example, like the Tokyo 2020 Olympics would force the government to have these conversations because when the international community uh, joins Japan for this event, I'm sure they're not going to tolerate uh, these high temperatures and these extreme conditions when the event's held. Well, there's currently a a massive debate ongoing, uh, and there has been for some years, about what the 2020 Olympics are going to do in terms of temperature. Uh, The last time the Olympics were held in Japan in, in 1964, the Olympics were actually moved to October to avoid Japan's summer temperatures. That's not being done this time. They're being held in August, the same as usual. And now we've just had the hottest summer on record. 
So if 2020 ends up with a similar level of heat, there's a real question mark over even the safety of the athletes, let alone the comfort of people who come to, to see the Olympics here. So there's a very big question mark over the Olympics in terms of the weather and in terms of the government response to it. Some things are being discussed, like the possibility of having a kind of special summertime. So essentially changing the clocks so that events would be running um, a little bit earlier in the day before things start to get too hot. But there's a, you know, that really feels like it would not be enough to address the degree of problem that we're seeing this summer. What other lessons has the Japanese government taken from uh, these uh, natural disasters this summer? I mean, for example, with the earthquake this week in Hokkaido, a nuclear power plant uh, was in the affected area, but it it did seem to uh, have the backup generator kick in. But are there still concerns about nuclear, for example? There are still some concerns about nuclear, but in in this specific instance, I mean, this was a pretty severe earthquake coming in the wake of a pretty severe typhoon, and the backup generators kicked in. There's no particular danger um, at that plant at the moment. So I I think people are quite happy that the nuclear situation is sort of under control. It's worth pointing out that plant wasn't online. So that plant is a plant that has been offline since the 2011 earthquake. Um, So the power that went out there is just kind of the power that was keeping it ticking over and keeping the, the radioactive fuel safe. And they were set up with about seven days worth of diesel fuel for their emergency generators. Um, So I think the lessons, it's less about lessons being learned there and more about lessons that are still being applied from the disaster that happened in 2011. When we talk about lessons learned, um, we're still in the midst of this disaster. I mean, there's about 40% of Hokkaido that is still without power. So this is still something that's very much ongoing. It's, It's a current situation. And there's going to be a point over the coming weeks where hopefully these disasters slow down for a little while and people can sit down and start to think about them. There have been some unusual patterns this summer. And one of the key ones has been the way that they pile on top of each other. The Hokkaido earthquake was made much more serious by the ground being waterlogged by an incredibly powerful typhoon. And there is a question about whether Japan's readiness for disasters, which is excellent in terms of being ready for earthquakes, it's great in terms of being ready for typhoons. Now perhaps they need to start thinking about what happens when these things happen at the same time. And that adds a whole extra level of complication. But that debate is one that's going to happen once the disaster response itself is dealt with. Rob, we'll be talking shortly uh, to an engineer about the merits of reclaimed land or man-made islands in Japan, but I understand that the Tokyo Disaster Response Centre is on a man-made island itself. Is that right? That's right. It's on the island of Odaiba, which is in the middle of Tokyo Bay. There's a lot of uh, reclaimed land around Tokyo Bay, and there's a very famous things that are on it, like Tokyo Disneyland is built on reclaimed land, for example. Um, and the whole sort of perimeter of the bay has essentially been reclaimed to all these islands and and so on and so forth. There is a question mark over them in terms of natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunami and so on, how they'll stand up to that. And um, I think there's a a major engineering discussion being had around that at the moment. Wasada University researcher Robert Vahi in Tokyo there. Kansai International Airport also copped a beating this week during Typhoon Jebi. One of the airport's two runways and parts of a terminal building were flooded and the bridge connecting the airport to the mainland was damaged. Thousands of stranded passengers had to be evacuated via boats and buses. The airport, which is a gateway to Osaka, Kyoto and Kobe, opened in 1994 after nearly seven years of construction. It's on a man-made island and ever since it was built, it's been sinking. Gollum Reza Messery is a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois in the United States. He's also a co-author of a report into the rate of settlement at Kansai International Airport. He says he's not surprised part of the airport was underwater this week. 
It is sinking, and uh, we have plotted the rate of sinking as a function of uh, time. The airport was designed originally to remain four meters above sea level. We show that actually the Island One violated that requirement in 2001, I believe. And of course, subsequently, uh, it has been settling more. So one can assume that between 2001 and the present, it has settled another two meters. And therefore, it's not surprising that recently the airport was flooded. Uh, the waves that are created by these typhoons, they can easily be as tall as four meters. So just so to clarify, how many metres above sea level is the airport now? The uh, island one probably is uh, equal or less than two metres above sea level. And hence why it, it couldn't take those four metre waves. Exactly. I'm, I'm not sure it was exactly four metres, but I'm saying this type of uh, type wounds, they can create such a high waves and that's why of course the airport was designed to remain at least four meters above sea level. In 2001, Island One had already settled 11.4 meters and you can see that between 2001, uh, in fact, uh, to the present, it has uh, already probably settled another two meters and that means, as I said, probably therefore the runways are about two meters or so, or maybe even less, above sea level. Island 2 has not, it doesn't appear that it's not reported that has been flooded. And again, our, uh, uh, the, the measurements of the settlement, our predictions show that they, it will start to violate the four meter above sea level in 2036. So it's uh, definitely uh, at the present time, it is more than four meters above sea level. So that's why they don't have problems there. Professor Messery, how did we get to this point? How did the calculations become so inaccurate? There are many different explanations. It seems like uh, if you look at the soil profile, the below the, the sea bed, there is a 20 meter thick soft clay layer, which is the softest, and it seems like they just concentrated on that. On the other hand, in our sediment analysis, which go, we take go down all the way to 400 meters below the seabed, we are actually analyzing almost 290 meters of clay that is settling. So they apparently did not take the the compressibility of those layers into account. One thing that I want to emphasize, and of course, after these problems have developed, they have come and they made statements such as, like, these are all unusual clays or what an unusual behavior, etc. I'm sorry, none of that is the case. The clays have been behaving exactly the way expected. Right, so you're suggesting this was foreseeable. Yes, 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 it was. At the time that the airport was designed, uh, we had the same, pretty much same knowledge that we have now. And um, uh, I have been very interested in these projects because I've had previous experiences in Japan. 
and I worked with the Portland Harbor, which now is called the Portland Airport Institute. And uh, at the time that I heard about the project, I showed great enthusiasm and interest toward it. What I can tell you that I was told that they have decided not to allow participation of any non-Japanese engineers. So that's how <laughs> that's that's what happened. While in 1991, we actually had a major conference in Yokohama on uh, uh, coastal geotechnical engineering. I was one of the, the people that organized it, and I gave a keynote lecture, and I uh, looked into these reclamation projects. But deliberate decision was made not to have the uh, non-Japanese engineers to be involved in this project. Apparently, a decision was made to to go that way. <laughs> Professor Messri, in light of what's happened with Typhoon Jeki, I guess it begs the question, are reclaimed land, man-made islands, viable in the long run? They, they certainly are, and... Uh, there have been uh, many construction projects that have been very successful. I also worked on Changi Airport in Singapore. It's uh, I hope that you have been to the airport and, and uh, the beautiful road that connects it to the city. So, yes, it is. But, you see, as I said, this is a very special situation. They try to minimize uh, noise pollution and they the, this reclaimed island, five kilometers offshore, and that meant that the water is deep, about 20 meters deep, which means that they had to use a very thick reclamation fill. For island two, it's over 40 meters thick, which is very heavy. And also, as you move away from the shoreline, thickness of the sediments, compressible layers, increases. So, it could have been easily predicted if uh, the people who designed the airport, they had taken into account compressibility of the, the layers that, as I said, go down to uh, as much as 400 metres below seabed. Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of Illinois, Golem Reza Mesri there. And that's all for Japan in Focus for this week. Jamatane. See you next time. <laughs>